Welcome to the Inspired Leader Podcast, the series in which we explore secrets of leadership inspiration. I try to stand up for the things I believe in that I have experience of. Life took a dramatic twist when I had a very severe car accident in 2004. There's an energy and a self-awareness that grows and learning that happens when you do push yourselves into places that you didn't think you could cope. I'm Andy Bird, and today I'm delighted to be talking to Martha Lane Fox, one of the leading pioneers and champions of the digital revolution. Hello Martha, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you, very nice to see you here in Somerset House. Indeed. So now we're going to talk about some of the remarkable things you've done in the past, your experiences with lastminute.com, your role as the government's digital champion. But I'd like to start in the present. What is it you're up to these days? Um, it's hard to put it in a box. I am both lucky and unlucky. Unlucky because uh, my life took a dramatic twist when I had a very severe car accident in 2004 and I'm not really able to do kind of one CEO or you know, full-time job in the way that perhaps I should be able to age 45, not 95. And so I have a portfolio life which can be fabulous because you can do lots of different things but can also be frustrating because you're inherently only ever relatively superficial across lots of different subjects. So I think my life probably divides into a couple of buckets. The first is I try to use my small voice in ways that are helpful for the UK without sounding grand. I try to you know, stand up for the things I believe in that I have experience of, whether that's women in technology, entrepreneurship, responsible technology, trying to encourage um, the public sector and our public life and discourse to become more digitally enabled. And I guess as part of that, I've started a small charity think tank, Dot Everyone, whose offices we're in today. So that's one aspect of my working life. Then the other aspect is I'm still sort of involved in some commercial stuff. I sit on the board of Twitter. I started a karaoke chain called Lucky Voice, which um, I don't run. The amazing guy called Nick runs, but that's quite fun. And I still, you know, I like being in the intersection between the public and the private. Yes, yes. PFIs are not very fashionable at the minute, but I quite like being in that intersection. I mean, that's a hell of a mixture of stuff. What an interesting life you must lead. And it starts really, you know, to career terms way back in the years of lastminute.com. And that must have been extraordinary five years. It was really quite a quick burst of activity from when it started to... Yeah, I was there from... Well, we started in 97-ish, yeah. 98 really, so 20 years ago exactly, and I left in 2004, yeah. so it was... However many years it was, I can't think <laughs> now. But we sold it in yeah. 2005, so that was the trajectory. Yeah. And... It's easy to write stories about that in your head yeah. when actually trying to be as hyper self-aware as I can. We got very lucky. You know, yes, we had an amazing idea, and I can say that because it was Brent's. Yes, we worked freaking hard. Yes, we had an incredible team around us, but as anybody who's listened to this who works in the startup world will know, it's also about luck. You know, the luck of timing, the luck of getting investment, the luck of technology working in our case, you know, the right conflagration of different events. So it was chaos, pretty much, <laughs> yes. relentless chaos, but we got lucky in yeah. some pretty key bits of this. And I'm interested, right at the start, what was it that inspired you to do in the first place? But how did that actually happen? Well, it was Brent's idea, as I say. It was something he'd um, written down a couple of years earlier and it wasn't the right time to do it. And I was lucky enough that we'd worked together and he asked me if I'd like to come and help him. And I said yes, uh, unequivocally, because I was 25. I worked with Brent um, previously, so I knew he was smart 
had the same sort of values as me about how he wanted to build something. And, you know, it was an exciting time to be thinking about technology. So it wasn't a very difficult decision. Overarching all of that was, I thought I'd use it. You know, it was pretty simple. There wasn't any way at that time, apart from Teletext, can you believe it, yeah. to buy stuff at the last minute. Yes, you had a real sense of the opportunity. Yeah. Exactly, and I knew I'd use it, and that's yeah. pretty much where I start with things. Is this something that I can imagine yeah. engaging with, being interested by, wanting to use, whether that's a charity or whether that's something yeah. you can actually yeah. pay for? Yeah. So you go through this extraordinarily intense experience for a few years, and then you sell at the peak of the dot-com boom. In fact, it was just after, actually, didn't you? Well, we took the company just... public in yeah. 2001, 2000, sorry, yeah. at the peak of the dot-com boom, yeah. and then the market collapsed literally two weeks after our initial public offering. Our share price went from five pounds to 19p. It's quite a brutal thing. Yeah. You, know, you laugh, but it wasn't funny. It was pretty yeah. awful because you're yeah. trying to keep 3,000 people motivated, yeah. all of whom have thought they might be millionaires and have absolutely no yeah. options worth anything. And so that's quite a hardcore experience. And you know, we got lucky the business was growing. The disreality of the yeah. stock market was actually kind of not linked to our own experience of growing the business. And we plugged away, and luckily things came good. Came yeah. Yeah. I yeah. left the company in 2004, and then Brent uh, made the decision, and I totally yeah. agreed with him to sell it in 2005. Yeah. And how did you feel when you left, after you'd been through Do you know what? I was so ready to leave because I had a different relationship to, to Brent. You know, it has been his original idea, and although he was always so generous in considering me a co-founder and a co-leader with him, I think I had a different horizon in my mind. You know, I could imagine a life without lastminute.com. I had other things I really wanted to do. You know, I had always had a strong sense of social justice and I'd helped start a charity called Reprieve, literally from the broom cupboard of the lastminute.com offices. I wanted to get involved across a you know, different sphere of things. So I felt excited, of course sad, you know, the yeah. chapter was closing, but it, it didn't feel cataclysmic, it felt more opportunistic. Yeah. And you've gone on to do some amazing stuff. So you've, you know, you've entered the House of the Boards. You've been the government's digital champion. You're on many boards. Twitter, you mentioned. You've clearly put yourself out of your comfort zone. Some of those things are very impressive, but must be pretty daunting. I mean, have you approached all that? Have you, have you found going into those various sort of challenging situations? Uh, yes, I do put myself out of my comfort zone. And, you know, my husband will tell you every time I stand up to make a speech in the House of Lords I get disproportionately anxious to the probable impact it's going to have let alone you know, probably my ability to speak in public which is quite considerable now having done it so many blooming times but you know I do really think and it's not for everyone just for me personally there's an energy and a um, self-awareness that grows and learning that happens when you do push yourselves into yeah. places that you didn't think you could cope. And I think I've always been like that. It's not something that I've been very conscious of. You know, the most extreme example was when I nearly died in a car crash I mentioned. I was in hospital for two years. I broke 28 bones. It was very, very profound. You know, it's not a question of being in your comfort zone or not. It's no. something so entirely different. It's so much more serious full yeah, stop yeah. and anything else I've ever faced that I think when you've been through something like that it does help in a funny way because you put your life in a different context I don't mean suddenly oh everything's you know I want to do all these kinds of things not all these kinds of things but it does give you a different perspective because you've had to battle yeah. the most extreme situations yeah. 
I mean, the courage you've shown to come through what was obviously a dreadful kind of um, experience. I mean, how have you learned to cope with that, the pain and the, the, the stress? Well, the thanks for saying courage. I don't, again, think it's not that self-conscious. I think you either go on or you don't. Mm-hmm. It's really as simple as that. And I think some people in my situation wouldn't have had the family networks, the yeah. friends networks, the money, frankly. And I think it's really easy for me to sit here, a millionaire, and say, oh, no, it was all me. It really wasn't. <laughs> it was a lot that I could pay for the best nursing care. I could get help at home. You know, I'm lucky I have lots of space in my house. I have, you know, I can get people to um, come and do things that other people could not do, like expert physio care and all those things. So not a day goes by I don't think about how lucky I was to have had the resources to help myself more than other people in my situation would have done and that takes the edge off it but you know it's not easy frankly and what I find most dementing as you asked is that a bit of your brain is always in that coping strategy and it's boring and it just takes a bit of energy away from something else and it definitely makes you a somewhat more irritable person at some moments it definitely makes you more short-tempered more tired just because you are thinking how am I going to do this situation or have I got this that and the other that I might need all those things yeah. your listeners definitely don't want to hear about that. <laughs> so where have you drawn the positive energy um, as you look back over your life generally but maybe some of these more yeah. recent moments are there particular people you can point to or experiences that have been inspirational for you? You know, I meet people every single day that I find inspirational and I'm lucky in that I get to meet some really interesting people, but they're not always people that I meet in my working life. You know, my, if I think of my friends, you know, two women that immediately and always are at the front of my mind are two very close girlfriends of mine, Lucy Lake and Seanine Lamb. Lucy uh, was co-founder and now executive director of a big charity called CAMFED that she was starting pretty much at the same time as I was starting lastminute.com. It helps educate young women in Africa. You know, 20 years ago, that was not a fashionable thing to do. Thank God the tide has turned now. People have realised that it's fundamental to our collective progress. You know, I'd ring up and say, oh, Lucy, I can't get all these flight tickets to print out. And she'd be like, whatever, Marth. I've just had a fight with a tribal leader who won't let his kids go to school in the village and if they try to he might kill their parents you know it was literally that stark she's a pretty extraordinary person similarly Seanine uh, my best friend started a charity called Just the Kids Law helps young people in trouble with the law youth justice wasn't really a category when they started their charity it is now she's changed the law she's helped thousands of young people again those are the women that I draw strength from as well as extraordinary people in literature, culture, history. I'm an ancient historian. I studied ancient and modern history at university. You know, Mary Wollstonecraft to Ada Lovelace to Margaret Hamilton, who helped design the code that sent the first rocket up into space. There are people everywhere. You just have to look for them. So one of the interesting changes in your career as you move through uh, from the commercial sector, you took quite a big role in the government, and in particular sort of role around the being the digital champion czar, I think it was called at the time. How did that come about and, and what did you sort of get from that? How, how did that sort of shape your life and the kind of purpose that you were fulfilling at the time? I am, um, this is an absolutely true story. This is not fake news, right? I was standing in the offices uh, of Lucky Voice in Soho, Lucky Voice HQ, and we were talking about where our second site, I think it must have been, was going to be. And I got a call on my mobile and it said, number 10 would like to connect you. And, you know, I wasn't... 
I was still walking very wobbly a bit. My brain was sort of right. still half in the accident. It was 2009. And um, I was not, you know, networked into the political class. I hadn't you know, been hobnobbing furiously with politicians and I thought it was a joke. And they said, no, no, really, we're going to get number 10. And the Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, at that point, wanted to encourage me to become digital inclusion champion and help people who hadn't had access to technology get access to it. Now, my friends are very quick to point out the acronym for Digital Inclusion Champion was very apt for me, generally. They're quite right. But um, it was a massive opportunity for me and one that I relished because I think I'd always had more, not more, but I think I'm more naturally happy in the public sector, actually, was more doing public service sounds a bit uh, self-aggrandizing I don't mean it to but I'm only quite a good businesswoman in the end I think you know profit whatever purpose I'm much more excited by and I know the two linked are the most important combination of all but for me it was really life-changing because I got an opportunity to work at government in a very high level to do something that felt quite important that I had relative understanding of because I knew a bit about technology and I could bring some of those skills but also because it made me see the UK in a completely different way. I got to travel all over the country, go to hundreds of projects that were helping people use the internet or not or you know old people in homes where I was trying to encourage the care home to take on you know wi-fi or whatever it might be to help the residents. So it was massively um, influential in my working life and it led me luckily to be continued with David Cameron and we then moved the work on to set up the government digital service and create gov.uk and the team there you know it's just the spark of inspiration for that but uh, it was such an extraordinary opportunity because when government gets behind something the levers are incredible you know yeah. the scale is just vast. Yeah. Did you learn anything particular about yourself about yourself as a leader through that experience, that step change that took place? But you know what, I'm not sure if it was just that, but I think what I've realised about myself over the last X number of years, let's not go there, I'm 45, <laughs> in a couple of weeks, um, is that I used to think that my natural skills were about teams and management of teams and talent, and I actually realised I'm terrible at that. I'm not a very good manager. I think I'm probably, you know, mercurial. I dive around, I'm not very consistent. I'm always having a new idea. What I am quite good at is being symbolically, you know, charging from the front, being bold, encouraging people to follow me, doing, you know, your classic, let's all go over here, even if we don't quite know what over here is, and painting a picture of stuff in the future that might be exciting. And then I'm, I'm, I think I work best in tandem with someone who's good at the follow-through, the deeper operational detail. I like detail, it's not that so much, but I just think I used to think I was a brilliant people manager, but I'm really not. So I think that all of this work just crystallised that in my mind and what I think I was really learned from um, setting up government digital service in setting it up the team set it up but I helped create the team and did the initial work with them was that this thing is is a bit like a war you're going into a situation i.e. government where most people do not want to change because they're scared understandably don't know what their jobs are going to be what does the future look like and you need a multiple pronged attack so I could go in and do the charm offensive about this is the shiny new things that's going to be for citizens for the world all this stuff and then other people needed to come and follow up with and this is how it's actually going to work so I enjoyed that and I realised that actually even though it can sometimes feel perhaps um, lightweight it can be important to be yeah. that, that first over the, yeah. over the hill can be the first first vanguard could be quite important yeah. too So in all that work you've done to champion digital and inclusion of people throughout society if you could have a wish 
if one thing could change to make the biggest difference, what would it be? That is a very good question. You know, I think if you'd asked me that, even a couple of years ago, I would have said, we just must make sure everybody is able to use the internet, whatever their social class, whatever their background, they must have access to a relatively cheaply priced computer that they can use and learn. Now, I'm not sure that's the ask that I think would make the biggest difference. That is incredibly important, and people that do the hard, unglamorous work of helping people get access to technology, whatever situation they're in, should be saluted and praised. I think, for me now, we are at such an important inflection point in our country's history, because of all the things that, I'm not even gonna say the B word, but we know what we're talking about. We need to be making really smart decisions about the future, and yet, how, if you're running a big primary care trust in the NHS, or a big school, or you're running a big government department, or you're part of our you know, security strategy, how do you understand technology and how do you make it relevant to what you're doing and use it to benefit what you're doing? These are such fundamental questions. You know, People who are spending enormous amounts of the public money, who are making big decisions for us as citizens, I don't believe they have the tools, the skills, the resources for the modern world. Not because they're bad, just because it's really freaking hard. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that would be the, the wish that yeah. I'd have, that we could immerse our leaders, people who are making decisions for us in the public sphere, in that broadest sense, in the digital world, in a way that is helpful to make better decisions. Fantastic. So to pull things to a close, your opportunity now, there's a lot of people listening. Um, you've had an extraordinary life with so many dimensions to it. sounding like it's nearly over. I really <laughs> hope you don't know something. Plenty, plenty, something still, still, plenty still to go for. But I said, what, what advice would you give people to live inspired, fulfilled lives, particularly as leaders? Any, any sort of tips that you would give people? Well, I am sure that people you've talked to before have said, you know, hire amazing people, build your team, all that stuff. You know, and that is true. You know, I think that if you can find inspiration with the people you work with and get smarts around you, and I don't just mean the smartest people in the room, the cleverest people in the room, but people that you like being with and you want to spend your working life with, that is inspiring. So that's, you know, maybe that's just a given if you are um, building something. The thing perhaps a bit more provocatively is actually I find for myself that I am at my best, or I think I'm at my best perhaps, and I am most inspired when I'm outside the world that I work in. So, you know, yeah. I go to the theatre really regularly. Last year I tried to read a book a week. I posted them on Instagram to try and keep myself honest. I didn't manage a book a week, but I didn't do badly. <laughs> you know, I, so I read a lot. And I don't just read about tech. I read novels, I read history books, I read non-fiction. I don't want to be somebody that is closed and limited to a particular sphere. I personally think that I get energy and inspiration from reading about, you know, everything from what battleships of the future might look like to, you know, how did they um, first learn about consciousness in animals through to the Booker Prize winner. Yeah. And I think it is never, ever, ever a wasted moment to sit down and read a book. Or to listen to a podcast. Or to listen to a podcast. And here we are. <laughs> no, absolutely, exactly. I, I mean, that, I just mean have a cultural hinterland, I guess is what I mean. Have yeah, a hinterland right, really, really. and... Yeah, that could be anything. It could be looking at art, it can be you know, writing your own poetry, it could be drawing a picture, but have a hinterland because that's, I think, what builds resilience and who knows what the world is going to throw at us in the next 20, 30 years. But if you can go back to that core resilience because you're not one-dimensional, then I think you'll be better for it. Martha Lane Fox, thank you very much indeed for talking to me. Martha Lane, it's really great to meet you.